Man, it's just so good to worship and sing together. I mean, just if you just listen, I love listening and just trying to hear everyone singing together. Um, it's just powerful to know we're like we're united. You know, we're we're worshiping God together. We're not on our own. Um, man, it's just beautiful to do. Beautiful to hear that. And uh, can you guys hear me? Am I? Make sure we get that for people online too. You know. All right. Okay. So. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus 34 today. Exodus 34, uh, beautiful piece of beautiful passage. And my title is this: to continue with God. Last week was to meet with God. This week is to continue with God. And we're following these Israelite people in the wilderness uh, at the base of Mount Sinai, and they've met with God, right? But now we're going to see: will they continue with God? Um, and we're going to be taking a real di- uh, deep look here at um, at Exodus 34, and just getting into this idea of the passage here. Uh, has anyone ever, um, everyone, like, gotten ready in the morning? Uh, you get all your stuff, you try to, you grab your keys, you're ready to walk out the door, and then you look at your hand and you've lost your keys. Has anyone ever done, I've done that. I did that the other day. I had to, I had to go find my spare key. It took a while. And, like, you, you, we do that at times. We're ready, we're all prepared, we hear, we know what we need, and then all of a sudden, where is it, you know? We're like, oh, man, I lost it, right? And what we're going to see in this passage is that Israel has just been given the covenant. They've just, been, they've just been given God's instructions. And it's like they just threw the keys right out the window. It wasn't even like they lost them. It was like they were driving down the road. They put it in neutral, took out the keys, and threw it out the window. All right, that, that's the immensity that we're going to see in this passage with Israel. And um, as we dive into this passage, I just want to kind of recap where we are in the Bible and then also where we are in this book. Um, and so we see... Uh, if we start from the beginning, I'm just going to re-sum up uh, between Genesis 1 and where we are. We, we see that God in the beginning creates everything, creates the world, right? Creates the universe, creates the stars, the animals. He creates the, the sun. He creates it all. And then he creates people in his image. And he, and he makes a garden and he puts man and uh, female in this garden, right? And they are his representatives and they're living in this garden as it's the dwelling place of God. They're, they're able to meet with God in this garden. Um, but when they distrust God, when they break uh, what he's given them to do, they are exiled out of the garden. They've broken the relationship. They've chose to, to run away from him, to, to do their own thing, and so they have to leave the garden. And so now the rest of Scripture is going to be uh, humanity, how God is going to make a way for us to come back to him. That's the rest of Scripture. And so we see that the world just gets worse and worse, right? It gets total chaos, and then we come to a man named Abraham. Abraham is God's chosen person to, to kind of restart humankind to be again in his presence. And, and Abraham is given this promise. He said, your descendants will become a great nation. And this nation uh, will, will inherit a land. And this, this nation with the land will then be a blessing to the whole world. And so the rest of scripture is following this family line and seeing how God is going to bless the whole world through this family line. Right? And so we go down about 450 years or so, and then we get to um, his descendants. They've become a nation, but now they're in captivity. They're in slavery in Egypt, and they are, they are being impressed. And so now they're calling out to God, right? And God says, because of my covenant that I made with Abraham, I'm going to bring you out, and I'm going to give you a land, right? And so that's the rest of the story from Exodus 1 all the way to 18. God, it's this beautiful image in 19 when he recaps it that God is like an eagle and he had Israel on his wings and he brought them out, right? And we see that God had total sovereignty and power to bring these people out of Egypt, right? And then God brings them into the wilderness 
to, the, to this Mount Sinai, the same place that Moses first met with God when he was told to bring the people out of Egypt. And God is now at the top of this mountain. Moses is with him. And we just learned last week how Moses was given this covenant to bring to the people in order that they would, if they obey and keep this covenant, they would, they would be a, a kingdom of priests, his special possession amongst the whole world, a holy nation set apart for his purposes in order to be a doorway of his presence and knowledge to the rest of the world, right? That, that was their command. That's our command as well. But now we're going to see after this has been given this covenant, they've been given this, this command They've been given all of these rules and all of these instructions on how to be the people of God and be the doorway in order for people to see him so that they could be a blessing to the whole earth like Abraham was promised. There's some hiccups, and we're going to look at these uh, in, in chapter, it actually starts in 32 to 34. But before we get to 32, uh, chapters 19 through 24 are where we see that covenant, the instructions, where the Ten Commandments are in chapter 20, and many of the other instructions um, and, and after that, the people, they confirm, they say, we will do the covenant in chapter 24, right? And then they're, they're put on their way. Moses goes back up the mountain. And now from chapter 25 all the way to chapter 31, Moses is going to be given instructions in order to build this tabernacle, right? You probably heard the word tabernacle. And, and it's, it's a lot of, I mean, six chapters of the book of Exodus are just given to how to build a tent, right? And then after um, 35, chapters 36 all the way to 40, actually 35 to 40, are going to be them just filling out the instructions, actually doing them. So we have about 11 chapters that are dedicated to this tent, to this tabernacle. Why in the world is there this, this much information about a tent in the Bible? Because this tent isn't just any ordinary tent. It's actually one of the key promises that God's made to these people he's going to dwell in their midst. And this is going to be the place where they meet with him and there's sacrifices and offerings made in order that the relationship would be restored until the final coming of its full restoration. This would be like a mini garden of Eden where humanity would have a, a place where God would dwell with them. And there are strict rules put around this because humanity has been fallen. But in this tent, this is where the promises start to come alive that God, he is their God, and they are his people, and he is in the midst of them, right? And so as we look at this, in between the instructions for how to build this tent where God dwells, it's actually really cool. The word tabernacle in the original language comes from a root word meaning to dwell. It's, it's where God dwells. It's even right in the title of what this tent is called. It's the dwelling place of God with them. But right in between chapters 30, um, Right in between chapters 34, uh, what is it? No, 25 through 31, 31, I got it, all right. And, and then after that, there's sandwiched in these instructions and then the filling out of these instructions. There's this scenario, there's this episode, the golden calf episode, and it's sandwiched in between these. And I mean, you, if you really, you could spend some time, I, I would recommend the Bible Project. Mr. Gary's put me onto the Bible Project. I have learned so much. Um, from them, and they will they teach you so many so much of the artistry put into how the Bible was written, but the sandwich this in between god 's dwelling uh, the instructions for god 's dwelling and them fulfilling it is this episode, and it 's the golden calf so moses he 's about to come down from the mountain with all the instructions 
on, on how, to, how to build this tent, and they're going to fulfill these instructions. But while he's up there, the people, they're not enjoying the presence of God. They're not, they're not saying, how can we obey and keep this covenant? They're saying, why is Moses delaying? Why isn't he, when's he coming back? Where is this God who made us, brought us out of Egypt? Are we going to die out here? And, and they're saying, you know what? Aaron, Aaron is the second in command there. He's like, can you make us a golden calf? And we will worship that as the God who brought us out of Egypt. And Aaron, he, he's, he's not really into it. And you can see his reluctance in the story, but he does it anyway. He follows along and Aaron builds them a golden calf and they worship this golden calf. And while Moses is up there getting these instructions, God says to him, says, Moses, your people, they've, they've chosen to follow this golden calf. They've not obeyed my covenant. And so I'm going to have to destroy them all and start a new nation with you. That's what he says. And Moses he intercedes for these people. And God has every right to do this. They already committed to this covenant, knowing the responsibility they have and the consequences if they don't. I mean, we're only a couple of days, we're only a couple of weeks into this covenant. And they're, I mean, it's still being made and they're breaking it. I mean, it's like, it's like making a cake and, and eating it all before you're even done. Like they just, they're taken over. They've, they've ruined it. They've tried to do it their own way. And now God's like, you've done it. You've ruined it. And so you, by the law, by what we've said, you deserve to be destroyed and I'll start new. But Moses intercedes. And Moses, he says, he says, Lord, your covenant with Abraham. Lord, the Egypt has already seen what you've done with this nation, how you've chosen them. Lord, you, you've done so much and the world has already seen your power and your glory. Please continue to use these people, right? He's really saying, please allow them to continue being your doorway in the world, even though they failed. Right? He's actually using the previous words of God, the previous will of God, to continue it in the future. Right? He, he's not coming up with his own reasons. That's the cool thing what Moses is doing. He's coming up with the reasons that God has already given. I think, I think it was always God's probably intentions, and God was probably teaching Moses uh, and teaching us that his will uh, will continue on. And so God's like, okay, I will keep the people. I won't destroy them, and I won't make a new nation out of you. But He's like, I cannot continue on with you. He says, you can go. I will send an angel with you instead of me to go into this promised land. And, uh, and I, will, I will not go with you. And Moses, he's like, we can't do that. So he comes down the mountain with the tablets that he just got. And he sees the people. They've already uh, been worshiping this, uh, worshiping this, this golden calf and um, probably just... It's an it's abomination what they've been doing. And, and what he does is he, he sees them. As soon as he sees them, he takes these Ten Commandments, right? He takes these two tablets of the covenant, and he destroys them. He breaks them. And it's almost symbolic, saying, you've already broken this covenant, this covenant that was supposed to be permanent. Like the stone it's been written on has now been destroyed. You've destroyed it with your actions, and now, boom, it's destroyed. There's an actual physical, physical representation of it. And so then he... he, he he takes the, this idol, this golden calf, he grinds it up, he puts it in their drinking water and makes them drink it. Probably, um, probably has something to do with showing them this is just a fake God. This isn't real. You can actually consume this God. This, this God isn't going to save you. This God isn't going to do nothing. It's a God with a little G. This is, this is just a piece of metal. So now the people, after Moses has told them, they're not going to, God's not going to continue on with us. They begin to mourn. They begin to weep. They they are distraught. Here's the main part of the promise that God would go with them to be this nation. 
I mean, how can you be a priestly nation if you don't have access to God? How can you be a window to God if, if you can't even be with God? So now this, they're, they're in a place of total, I don't know what to do. So Moses goes back into the tent of meeting. He meets with God and he begins to intercede again. And he says, God, he says, we can't, we won't go on if you don't go. Moses is saying, I would rather be in this desert without water, without food, without direction. I would rather stay right here and probably die than leave your presence and go without you to the promised land. He understood that being in the presence of God was greater than the blessings, the physical blessings that would come from God. That was the sole purpose. The story would have ended right there. The Bible would have ended right there if it weren't for Moses and because God was using him to say, Lord, we won't leave your presence. We won't go any further if you don't come with us. And so God, based on Moses' favor that he has with him, said, I will, I will continue on with you. And then Moses says, Lord, I want to, I want to know your ways, right? He wants to understand this God who's going to forgive. He wants to understand this God who's going to lead them on, who's going to continue with them. And God says, I will show you all of my goodness. I'll make it pass before you. And he says, I will also show you my glory. And so then, and he says, I'll express my name to you. And so now we get to this, this part where we're at in chapter 34. And I'm just going to read on from chapter 34 uh, as we see Moses go back up the mountain with new tablets to renew this covenant. It says this, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablet, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in, his two hands, or took in his hands two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And now I'm about to read this key, these key verses. But what you need to understand too is that God has said, I'm going to show myself to you, but you can't actually see me face to face, right? Because God is holy, he's separate. He's so powerful. He wasn't able to reveal himself fully because of the separateness and the sin of being human. So God said, I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock, right? I'm going to put you in like in a little crack in the rock, and I'm going to cover you with my hand as I pass. And, and when my face passes, I will take off my hand so that you can see the back of me, right? And I think what the passage is showing is the, the separateness and the glory of God that it's too immeasurable for us even to look at. I mean, it, God is so powerful. That's, we're seeing this. And And so this is what it says in verse six, as the Lord is passing. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. We see this is is God's first self-declaration of his character in scripture. And then also we see this, he says it twice, the Lord, the Lord. He's emphasizing um, himself. He is, this is a pinnacle of him here. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children 
to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. You see, that's what he was so worried about, that God wouldn't be with them. It is a stiff-necked people and and pardon our iniquity in our sin and take us for your inheritance. Here, uh, we see this revelation of God's character from himself. I mean, it's one thing to hear other people talk about God, but imagine God revealing himself, disclosing who he is, his ways, his goodness. And this is what we see. A God merciful and gracious, compassionate, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, but no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children, and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Right here, we have the character of God that will continue for generations and generations and forever and ever until there is no end. This is who God is. This is who he's declaring himself as. And what we see is this, that the only reason, the only reason that Israel will continue to be a priesthood, a kingdom of priests, the only reason they will continue to be his special possession has nothing to do with them and has everything to do with the character of God. Before this moment, they had broken the covenant. It was all over. They were supposed to die. It was supposed to be over. And now the only reason that the Bible will continue, they were supposed to go without God. The story would have ended. But the only reason that the story continued and God was in their midst was simply because of his character, because of his generosity, because of his love. This word love here, it's, it's one of the most profound words that we have in, in the Hebrew language. And it's, it's, a, it's a word that will be used mostly, almost, almost only for, um, for God as it continues. And it's not just a word that just expresses love. Love means so many things. I love Cheerios. I love, you know, but this word, this word means, this means a loyal love, a faithfulness, a love that goes beyond what is required, a love, a love that continues on for generations and generations and never ends, a love that, that doesn't end when the mistakes are made, a love, a love that captures and holds, a love that, that, that holds you and you know that you're cared for, it's a faithful, it's a loyal, it's a relational, intimate love, right? And he says, I have this love for you. He says, I have compassion. This word compassion in the original, it's actually one of, one of the words connected, one of the root words for it is actually a womb, right? And, and this word, it, it's saying like a mother loves her child, right? This, this love, so, so, so overpowering and undeserving This is what God has for Israel. The only reason they will continue to become this priesthood for the world to know the presence and knowledge of God will be because God allowed it, because he made them good enough, because he set them right, because he's the one who will continue it on. He becomes the means. He becomes the basis for everything that will continue in Scripture. And we'll see this passage. This is the most quoted passage um, in Scripture. It, it's quoted and alluded to over 20 times. And it comes up in, in vital moments in Israel's history. When, when, when uh, the nation of Syria later, about 500 or so, 
uh, actually about 700 AD, I mean BC, it will actually destroy the nation of Israel and, and take them as captives and kill them and murder them. And, and Jonah is then sent to the capital of this city and he's sent to go proclaim the goodness of God that they would become believers and faithful followers of him. And Jonah doesn't want to go because he hates these people. And then Jonah goes because he has no choice. He's eaten by a fish, brought and spit up, and he preaches the gospel. And then the people believe and they follow the Lord. And Jonah says, this is why I didn't want to come. Because I know, and he quotes Exodus 34, 6 through 7, because I know that you're a God who forgives iniquity and sin. I know that you're a God with compassion and mercy. I know you're a God with loyal love. Uh, the prophet Joel, as, as the nation Babylon will then come and destroy um, Judah, the southern tribe, the second half of the nation, and, and they will be decimated and brought into Babylon. Joel would then say to the Israelites, to these Judah, these people of Judah, he'll, he'll quote this verse saying this, if you would repent, I'll actually read it. He says, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, rend your heart not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. We see this in the passage itself. Uh, in verse six, actually right at the beginning of verse seven, he says, he keeps steadfast love for thousands. And the implication is thousands of generations, because we see generations come second here. And he says then, forgiven iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. There's two, we have a couple numbers that are being compared. Compare the steadfast love that's poured out for thousands and then the judgment, which is righteous judgment, to the third and fourth, right? He's saying, my judgment and my justice is real and right, but my desire is to give the steadfast love. It almost shows the reluctance of the Lord to punish, even though it must be done, compared to his desire to show the loving mercy and tender care. Right, the, the author is making this poetic comparison. And then also we see this. We have to recognize uh, that there is kind of like a tension in the verse. There is something where you're like, oh, I love steadfast love, man. Let that keep coming. But then you read verse 7, and he says, by no means who will clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, you might think this has been used in, for different things as uh, generational curses, that if your parents do something, then you'll be punished for it by God. I don't think that's what the author, I don't think that's what God was showing in this passage. Because if you look at um, chapter 20, verse 5, he actually says, he adds on to after being punished to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me. And what he's showing is not that you're going to be punished for your grandfather's and great-grandfather's um, sins, but you will actually, if you continue in the sin that your grandfather and your great-grandfather did, then the Lord will continue to punish. It's, it's not about um, generation curses. It's about the consistency of God. That for the first generation, when they, when they come, they repent, and they, they worship the Lord and, and serve him, they will get his steadfast love. And the same is true for the next generation, the next generation, and for all the ones that follow. But then it also means for those who, who continue to hate the Lord and turn from him and do what they want, and, and I love the language they use, uh, stiff neck, right? This is an agricultural society. 
They have lambs, they have oxen, they have all of these farm animals. And animals, they will point their heads where they want to go. And so when you've probably seen it with a leash on a dog, right? When, when that dog doesn't want to go where you want, he'll point his head and his neck won't turn, right? That's why we have to get these special muzzles and stuff and all that. And when you, what you need is that neck to turn. In the same way, he's saying, if you won't turn your neck to what the Lord wants, if you won't, if you won't obey what he has, which is good for you, and if your sons and then the next generation, the next generation continues in that, then you will face the judgment and the indictment of the Lord. It's about the consistency and the fairness of the Lord, that what's same for the one generation is the same for the next, right? And so he's revealing what he will be and how he will treat these people for the rest of time. That's what he's revealing. here, And that's why it's a paramount passage for the rest of Scripture. I mean, Israel, you would think maybe, maybe they get awesome at this point. Maybe, maybe they, they stop making mistakes. Maybe everything gets better after this, after they see the character of God. But the truth is the rest of Israel's history will be their continual failure and then repentance and then failure and sometimes no repentance for the rest of that time until we get to the New Testament and even after. And, and what we see is this, that humanity, it's not just Israel, it's all people, don't have the ability to live up to God's standard. And so because they can't, they continually break the covenant and lose the relationship that God is trying to restore. And so when they finally continue on and, and they're waiting, we see this buildup of their inability, but then we also see this anticipation for one who can actually come and bring the forgiveness one who can actually live according to what the covenant says, one who can actually do it in the place of Israel so that they could be forgiven. And that one person, who, who is it going to be? Is it going to be just a, 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 a normal person, a normal man? No, it says that in John, it says that the presence of God, God himself became man. The same God who dwelt at the top of the mountain and his form was shown in lightning and in the clouds and in fire. This same God became a man. The same God who, who had tender love, had mercy and steadfast love for these people would, would 2,000, actually I don't even know, a thousand years later become this man, this man who would, who would live the perfect life in order that the people would be forgiven when he died for their sins. Yahweh himself, God himself, is so great in steadfast love, so great in compassion and mercy, so great in forgiving iniquity that he becomes a man in order that he could become the sacrifice for the sin that the other people did. He doesn't just say, it's okay. He says there needs to be a payment paid. There needs to be a, a, a debt that's paid, a punishment for this sin. And, and I know that you will never get it right. So I'm going to be the one who comes and takes it for you in order that you can receive this steadfast love. This is, this is what Jesus has done on the cross. Jesus, Jesus took the penalty for sin in order that we would be the people of God, that we would have the Holy Spirit amongst us to live by his power. This is the promise that he's given. I love what Paul says in uh, Romans 2. He says this, if I can find it. He says, 
Oh, I lost it. This is a good one. It's worth waiting for. It says this. He, now he, he's bringing a comparison. He's seeing that um, in this Roman church that there's people who are very judgmental to other people who've sinned. And so he's comparing their judgmentalness to the mercy of God. And he says this. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Right? His word kindness, forbearance, and patience. Right? He, he's alluding to Exodus 34. Paul was reading Exodus 34. He's saying this is the same God. And his, his kindness, his love, his compassion is leading us to repentance, to, to get rid of the stiff neck and, and turn our ways back to him, to repent, to return. I love what Paul continues to say in, uh, in Romans 5, uh, verse 8. He says this, But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Israel was saved by, from the wrath of God because of his loving mercy, because of his steadfast, loyal love. It goes beyond the requirements. God had every right to take them off the face of the earth. But instead, he said, I'm going to preserve you, not because of what you can do, but because of me, because of my character. And Paul is saying the only reason, the reason that Christ has come, the reason that he's died for sin is that we would be averted from the wrath of God as well because of his love. This is the character of God that will continue on and continue sustaining us. The only reason we can have access to his presence, the only reason that we can, we can continue with him, the only reason that the story didn't end in Exodus 32 is because of the character of God. We stand on him. We stand on his shoulders. That's why Paul says, you have nothing to boast in. You boast in the Lord. Because what do we have to boast in? If you look at what I've done, I've been disqualified. But if you look at the God who, who stands with me and empowers me, I'm able to continue. The God who forgives. Right? I was thinking of uh, uh, Teen Challenge, Nikki Cruz. The story of Nikki Cruz. I, some of you, most of you probably have heard about this. It's a great story. Um, and Teen Challenge is a recovery ministry that was started by David Wilkerson back in the 50s or 60s. And he, he saw, he was just a pastor in, uh, in a rural area. And he heard what was going on in New York, the violence. And he saw these, these, a few young kids who were in trouble. I don't know if, I can't remember if they murdered someone or if they, like they murdered someone, right? And, and so they, he, uh, he was like, these people need the love. They need to know the love of Christ. They need to know Christ. And so he goes to New York. He starts preaching the gospel. He tries, he's getting involved in, in um, Nikki Cruz, who was a, a warlord in a local Brooklyn gang. He, uh, violent, known for his violence, loved his violence. He, he hears him preaching, and he says, I'm going to cut you into a thousand pieces, right? And, and and, and David Wilkerson says, and every single one of those pieces are going to scream the love of Christ, right? And, and the only reason that Nikki Cruz heard that was because of the character of God. And then Nikki Cruz, he ends up getting saved because of David Wilkerson. He ends up becoming a director of Teen Challenge. And, and I was looking at his website last night, and he actually continued. He's 83 years old. He still has a ministry. And he goes into inner cities with his team, and they raise up people who can then help these troubled teens who are in gang violence. What happened to him? Because if, if you ask me, when he was a teenager, 
that door was shut. There was no priesthood. There was no kingdom of priests. There was no presence of God in his life. He was disqualified. I wouldn't want to hear how to be a good person from that guy. But what happened to him is this, that the presence of God, the character of God, made him qualified. The character of God changed his life as, as he changed his neck from, from stiff to moving. He was able to, to repent because of the spirit of God and how his life has changed. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives are changed. Why? Because the relationship is not based on us. The relationship continues because of the character of God. That's what we see. I'm thinking of even when I was a kid. I was not a gang warlord, but I wasn't a, I, I mean, I made mistakes, man. I made big mistakes at, and I just even remember, even in elementary school, I remember doing something and um, really like betraying trust in my parents. And uh, I just remember because I was raised in, you know, with godly parents and they, they did really good. And uh, the presence of God in my life, I remember being so convicted, I couldn't even eat. And I remember... I remember, no lie, I, it's like it was yesterday. I remember being in art class in fifth grade and just like, oh, man, I got to tell them. And I remember going, uh, going to my parents and telling them what I did and expecting the wrath of God. I mean, let the lightning fly, right? And, but you know what I felt? You know what came to me was the character of God. And what came to me, because I was willing to repent and come and seek forgiveness and know that I was wrong. My parents, they met me with his character. They met me with loyal love. Punishment, but loyal love. Love that wouldn't leave me where I was, but changed me to continue on. If they had said, you're grounded for two years and it's all over, kid, I don't know if I would have enjoyed knowing the Lord. But because I, I met with the Lord through them, because they revealed his character to me, I was able to continue on with him, knowing that it's not based on what I do. I could never be good enough. Well, his, his character continues me on. His character continues you on. His character continues the relationships that you're in. His character can change how you love people, how you care for people. When you start becoming a doorway, this kingdom of priests for God's presence to the world so that they could see him and have knowledge of him and his love and his forgiveness... That opportunity is there because it's the character of God and he restores it. Last week we talked about how we can be a doorway through our, our obedience to his covenant. But what happens when that doorway is broken? What happens when, when you've smashed your doorway, when, when you didn't just lose the keys of, of your character? You, you were driving down the road and you took it out and threw it out the window. Is it over? It's not over because God has loving kindness. He has loyal love, compassion, and mercy. Not mercy that lets us continue in our sin, but mercy that changes who we are when we allow him to. We become more like him and reflect his character. We become qualified for the relationship because of him. That's what I see in our lives. And if the worship team wants to come up, we're going to end, and I just want you to think about at your home, when you're at home, 
Do you allow for the character of God to be shown through you? And have you allowed the character of God to forgive you? Are there broken relationships that can be restored? Can there be communion? Can there be reconciliation? I think there can when we make him the basis for relationship, when we allow him to be the one who continues it on. That's what he has for us. For parents, your children, they need to see the character of God. And for children, to your parents, do your best to show the character of God and know that when you fail, as Israel failed, when you repent, there's forgiveness, there's loyal love. He made it right through Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, we just look to you. Lord, we love you. Lord, we're in desperate need of you. God, we're just as broken as Israel. We're just as sinful as them. God, we would have probably made a statue. But Lord, just like you had mercy on them because of your loyal love, Lord, you've, you've had mercy on us through your son, Jesus Christ. You made a way where there was none. You became the way. Jesus, I just pray for anyone here who's maybe thinking, I need that love. I need to be restored. I need to be brought in to become somebody who can reflect you. Right now, it's not by what you, it's not by a prayer you say, it's by the faith that you have and a prayer is a reflection of that. And maybe you just want his forgiveness today. Just believe in him and accept him. And let's just say this prayer together. You can repeat after me. Lord, forgive me of my sin. I was never good enough, but you were. Lord, I return to you. Help me continue on. Thank you for Jesus who died for my sin. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we love you. Bless us, Lord, as sons, daughters, parents, uncles, aunts, grandparents, children. Lord, I pray that we would we would accept you and meditate on your character. And that, Lord, we would become a doorway for others, that you would restore them as well. You become the basis for our relationship. We won't go on without your presence, Lord. Restore us. Thank you, Lord. In your name, amen. Amen.